Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are a God of goodness and mercy, that in the midst of chaos and anarchy, you are still sovereign and Lord. We thank you for your purposes, and we thank you for raising up one such as Ruth, that we might learn from her and in Christ be descended from her. We praise you for the wonder of this story and long that over the next few days you give us insight and love for you. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know whether you managed to make it to Jane's seminar yesterday, but it was interesting as she was helping us think through the media and our interaction with the media with a particular focus on the riots in London and elsewhere in the last few days. The phrase that really strongly occurred to me during the midst of it, and and, uh, uh, Jay mentioned it yesterday, were those words from the end of Judges. Everyone did as he saw fit because there was no king. Uh, These words have been buzzing around my head. People doing what they want. Asserting their right to do what they want. Uh, The sound quality is not great on this, but this is a clip um, I got from um, Tuesday, BBC Online, and this is an interview with two girls who've been up all night on Monday night in Croydon, and they're interviewed at 9.30 in the morning, completely plastered, and talking about the riots. I hope you can hear something of it. Everyone was just on a riot, just going mad, like chucking things, chucking bottles, breaking stuff. Breaking stuff, it was madness. Yeah, it was good though. It was good fun. Yeah. Of course it is. Yeah. So you're drinking a bottle of uh, rose wine? At half nine in the morning? Yeah, free alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> Have you been drinking all night? Yeah. Like, it's the government's fault. Yeah. I don't know. Conservatives. Yeah, whatever it is. It's not even right. It's showing the police we can do what we want. Yeah, that's, it's all about showing the police we can do what we want. And now we have. Did you reckon it will go on tonight? Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully. Amazing. Everyone did as he saw fit because there was no king. Uh, This is a quote from 17th century political philosopher Thomas Hobbes, and he wrote this. If there is no central authority, life is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. if there is no central authority. That quotation was used to describe life in Mogadishu, capital of Somalia, uh, by a BBC journalist writing a few years back. And uh, this is something he wrote in his article. This was 2004. A former Somali army major, now a refugee in London, summed up life without government very well. There is nothing you can do when kids with guns steal everything you have, even your clothes. I'm from a small clan, so I was unable to fight back, he said. Here, there are rules which people respect, and so you can get on with your life in peace. It's hard to imagine, isn't it, what life must be really like in these situations. Solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. 
But think of uh, what it would be like if uh, every time you made a journey, you had to pay a tax at a checkpoint while knowing that the money wouldn't be used to improve social services but be used to buy drugs to keep the gang leaders happy. But you had to pay it. Uh, uh, Imagine a world where you couldn't afford the $3 to pay a GP to examine your child who had a fever. It's one of the things I remember most about living in Uganda is that uh, the moment that either of our children had a temperature, we had to do a malaria test, uh, whatever time or day, uh, day or night. The slightest temperature of fever, you had to test because it was a risk. Imagine you couldn't afford the $3 to take your child to a doctor. Imagine living in a country where 15% of children complete primary education. That means 85% of children do not complete primary school. That means the best job they could hope for growing up is to carry goods at market. And that, of course, doesn't pay enough. Now, we can eat and drink and enjoy all that we like while we're here. And I'm not trying to send us on a guilt trip. I'm just trying to say it's hard to imagine having nothing when we have so much. Now, those quotes come from 2004. I can't bear to think what Somalia is like today in the midst of the worst widespread famine for 50 years. It doesn't bear thinking about. You would want to leave wouldn't you? You would do everything you could to get out as quickly as possible. You would leave, wouldn't you? There's no point staying. There's nothing left to live for. Life is brutish and short. I want a better life. You would leave. Straightforward decision, especially if you have children. You'd get out. I can understand what, Abimelech, uh, what um, Elimelech did, especially with children. But the thing is, it's not quite as simple as that in the book of Ruth, because as we saw yesterday, there was no real government. Yes, everyone did as he saw fit because there was no king. And yes, every judge brought some sort of temporary respite to the people, sometimes only for a few years, maybe even just months. Uh, it was a terrifying time to live. Thomas Hobbes described it well. And if it was bad for men, it could be intolerable for women, as we saw. But this famine in Israel was not quite what an outsider might imagine. However shocking this may sound, this was a covenant famine. It was a covenant famine. So according to the covenant, what is the way to deal with this famine? Leave or repent? Isn't that what the law says? If you live like this, there will be famine. So what should you do? Leave or repent? Well, Elimelech leaves. And I understand it. Please, I do understand it. I would be screaming out to do the very same, especially with a young family. Here he is with his wife and two sons. You'd get out. The bizarre thing is that as you start reading this story uh, of uh, Elimelech's uh, departure and you start reading this book, uh, the bizarre thing is that you find that uh, it starts out like the story of three ordinary blokes, doesn't it? 
But that's only in the first five verses. After that, it becomes the story of three incredible women. And the writer subtly lets us know what he thinks all about it. Elimelech is the man's name. And what does Elimelech mean? Well, if you turn to your resources booklet, you'll find a list of some of the names and their meanings on page four. What does Elimelech mean? El means God. God is king. Elimelech means God is king. So what does somebody who is called my God is king do? He leaves. My God is king leaves God's land. More specifically, where has he been living? Well, he's been living in Bethlehem. And what does Bethlehem mean? It means the house of bread. My God is king leaves the house of bread during a covenant famine. There is famine in the house of bread. So what should you do? Well, history should help. Yes, the judges' period was grim, wasn't it? We saw that yesterday. But what happened when people turned back to God and cried out to him? God raised up a deliverer and brought peace and provided for his people. We saw that again and again and again in the period of the judges, didn't they? They cried out to God and he raised up a judge. It happened again and again and again. And if you remember yesterday, we saw that the surprise from the period of judges is not that the people keep failing, but that God keeps loving and keeps raising up a judge. But my God is king, leaves the house of bread during a famine. He leaves, he doesn't repent. And he leaves for Moab. Now, Moab has rather a lot of connotations. On the same page in the resources booklet, you'll see I've summarized some of the key interactions between Israel and Moab before this point. And um, there's, quite, there's quite a lot of baggage between Israel and Moab. If you look at the map on the back, you'll see that Moab is uh, the bottom right, uh, just north of Edom, which was another rather infamous neighbor. But uh, in Moab, there are all kinds of funny things going on. Uh, just have a look. Uh, let me just put up here Numbers 25. Don't bother looking it up. But uh, here's Numbers 25. And uh, here's one little um, incident that should alert us to potential trouble ahead. Numbers 25. The men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods. So Israel joined in worshipping the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. Okay, so this is what happens, or this is one incident of what happened when Israelite blokes got caught up with Moabite women. Not only does Elimelech leave, he takes his whole family to Moab, which brings its own spiritual risks. And of course... It's exactly what his sons do. They get linked up with Moabite women. Now, we can't obviously read his mind. That would be extreme speculation. But I can probably guess that um, he imagines his chances of survival are much better in Moab than Israel during a famine. I understand that. 
And they're much better, he would presume, I guess, his chances of survival are better in a culture that depends on an idol than a nation in a nation whose origins are divine. That's the sort of calculus that's going on. He's thinking, I've got a better chance of survival if I link up with the Moabites. My God is king? I think not. But in the story's telling, that uh, uh, things take a turn for the worse immediately. Elimelech dies, leaving Naomi a widow. However, she is not alone. She has her boys, Marlon and Kilion. They marry local girls. Well, of course they do. That's what happens when you settle in a new culture and you get fully immersed, especially if you're isolated. You can't live in your sort of subculture ghetto. You're not surrounded by lots of people from your own culture. You get mixed in with people locally. Great. Social cohesion. That's how, you know, the melting pot. And they marry local girls, Orpah and Ruth. And why not? It's a real sign of having settled, da- settled down and made Moab their home. You can't get more established, can you, than marrying locally. But notice how they're just called Moabite women. That little phrase alone would ring bells from Numbers 25, I guess. Is this a recipe for disaster? My guess is that the average Jewish reader who knew his Pentateuch would think, absolutely, this is not going to end well. And then disaster comes from left field. The two boys die. Three men have died, leaving three widows in Moab. So within 10 years, one family experiences two weddings and three funerals. Uh, Who's a Harry Potter fan here? Anyone? Yeah? Uh, Twilight fans? Excellent. (laughs) Both are very popular, and I do want to disparage them a little bit. I put in my notes that I don't want to, just in case that there are people who are fans. But anyway, they both gripped a whole generation. Anyway, I love this. One wag defined, uh, summarized the difference between the Harry Potter books and the Twilight books like this. Harry Potter is a story about love, friendship, bravery, loyalty, and the importance of family. Twilight is about the importance of having a boyfriend. (laughs) Now, you might think... Excuse me. You might think that Ruth has the same moral. It's very often reduced to just the importance of having a husband in a patriarchal, difficult world. Is that what Ruth is all about? One of the big problems, I think, with Ruth is that it gets reduced to a sort of Mills and Boone romance. And you can see why. I mean, it has all the makings of a BBC costume drama, you know, set in a northern mill town in the Industrial Revolution, perhaps. Uh, You know, the type, poor, vulnerable servant girl probably played by Scarlett Johansson. I guess, you know, uh, you need a token American, otherwise it won't sell over there. Um, But her English accent's not bad. And um, she catches the eye of dashing local landowner, of course played by Colin Firth. (laughs) And they all overcome all kinds of obstacles to declare true love. And in the end, they marry and have beautiful children and live happily ever after and become incredibly rich. Fantastic. It'll sell well. You'll all be glued on Sunday nights. But that's really to miss the point of Ruth. It's not Mills and Boone. Because if that is the point of the story, then Ruth chapter 4 will be a total mystery to you. It'll seem like a total anticlimax, not the conclusion and climactic conclusion of this story. In fact, it's rather awkward at the end, because Ruth behaves very weirdly. 
You see, Ruth is not, the book of Ruth is not about uh, the fact that Ruth can only be happy if she's married. It's actually about God's purposes to save the world, and I'm not exaggerating. Now, there are many perils on the journey. These three miserable, vulnerable, and lost widows come to the point where they see nothing left in Moab. And so they leave. And for Naomi, she leaves again as refugees. For Naomi, this is the second major uprooting in her life. And yet Yahweh does seem to be doing something at home, doesn't he? Look at verse 6. When she heard in Moab that Yahweh had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, ah, food in the house of bread, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. It's her home, not the daughters-in-law. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she'd been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Now, in the telling, there's a little hint something's up, isn't there? Yahweh has come to the aid of his people again. In the book of Judges, we saw God do that again and again and again. And it's happening here. You see, when this happens, God doesn't sort of wag fingers at people. He doesn't say, I told you so. He welcomes people with open arms and says, I'm so glad you're back. And by returning to Judah, Naomi is doing absolutely the right thing. You remember the, the, the wonderful parable Jesus told of the prodigal son, or rather the two sons. The younger brother is sitting there in the pigsty, and he realizes, I've got to go home. The situation was hopeless. It was a last resort, and yet he says, no, I've, I've got to go. Maybe dad will take me on as a servant, but I've got to go. And like the prodigal in Luke's parable, Naomi, I guess, at the top of her mind is thinking, there's food back home. I'm going home to eat. Perhaps she saw that God was at work again. Who knows what was going on in her mind. The important thing is that she went. Now, if you know your Old Testament history, you'll you'll know that famines often had the effect of getting people to move where he wanted them. And so there are a couple of uh, classic illustrations of that in Genesis. Abraham moved to Egypt because of famine in the land. Jacob and his sons moved to Egypt because of famine in the land then. Remember, they were helped by Joseph. uh, And Joseph was in the right place at the right time to store up the harvests over seven years. Could it be that something is up again. But don't forget, Naomi's status and that of her Moabite daughters-in-law was seriously undermined because not only were they women traveling alone without a penny, when they reached home, they were widows, landless, childless, hopeless. They were refugees, which made them exceptionally vulnerable indeed. How would they be received? Worse still, the Moabites were ancient enemies. How on earth were these girls going to be coped with? I mean, you know, not only had Elimelech deserted Judah when things were tough, his widow was returning with foreigners in tow. They weren't just economic migrants. 
they could easily be seen as political and spiritual defectors. It must have been a terrifying thought. How on earth would they be received? To put this in perspective, I've, I'm going to play you a song written by a friend of a friend who was working out of Hong Kong. And uh, she was engaged with helping uh, people who'd been um, forced to flee, refugees and so on. And so she's written this song called Do You Know? Um, and uh, she draws together some of the experiences of people she has encountered over, over the years Child blown apart on this going 
It's quite common for people to be hard on Naomi. It's easy for preachers to pour scorn on her apparent faithlessness, especially when she tells people of her change of name, uh, from Naomi, meaning pleasant or lovely, to Mara, meaning bitter. But think about it. Think of what she's lost. She's lost a husband. And therefore, not just his love and her status, but her very future security in a covenant-breaking, brutal society. A world where everyone does as he sees fit because there's no king. And it's not so much because there's no human king, it's because people don't recognize God as their king. It's all very well for the covenant to say what should and shouldn't happen. But as we saw yesterday, again and again, people take no notice of what the covenant says. And then she's lost her sons. Burying your own children simply isn't right. Ever. It's a real sign of the fallenness and brokenness of our world. That would be agony enough. But a woman in the ancient Near East without sons or husband was a woman without a pension or a future. And as she travels with Orpah and Ruth, she's leaving behind a home of many years, leaving behind her friends and her life, and facing an uncertain future. In fact, she understandably doesn't hold much confidence for the future. So you can see, she is in many ways the Old Testament's female equivalent of Job. And uh, one commentator, Carolyn James, comments like this. Uh, She writes this, Some may see this as an overstatement, but I think that Naomi actually out-Jobed Job. Both tragically tragically lose their families and the life they work to build, but Job is not alone. He still has his wife and a community to surround him, such as they are. Job is not an immigrant, and he is not a woman. 
So it's clear, Ruth, uh, Naomi's advice to her daughters-in-law is wise. Life in Israel as a non-Israelite would not exactly be straightforward. So she says in verse 8, they have a look at it in verse 8, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Presumably both their mothers are alive. The logical, sensible thing to do would be to go home. There's nothing for them with, with uh, Naomi. Start again, start over. In fact, she says in these verses, go back four times. Couldn't be more insistent. Go back, you fools. Don't come with me. Go back. Because what's at stake? Well, look how Naomi goes on. May Yahweh show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May Yahweh grant each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. I guess if Jane Austen was writing the story, she'd no doubt have written at this stage, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a young widow without means must be in want of a second husband with a good fortune. Naomi sees that as their only hope. Get a husband, get a future. And she puts this in the context of a prayer. She wants God to provide, but her idea of blessing is very narrow, isn't it? It's, it's for a husband. <laughs> How else would they be safe? Notice the language she uses to describe the blessings of a husband. You, you, you'll find rest there. That word rest, such a, a wonderfully resonant biblical word, isn't it? This is the goal of creation is rest. God promises rest to those who trust in him. But for them, it's clear what God's blessing needs to be, the provision of a husband. Look, look how it's a, her focus. Verse 11, who could become your husbands if I came with you, if, if you come with her. Verse 12, I am too old to have another husband. I'm not going to have one, and I'm certainly not going to have children. Verse 13, would you remain unmarried? Now, she does sound a bit like Mrs. Bennett in Pride and Prejudice, doesn't she? And I don't blame her for one minute. In that society, without prospects, what else could these stranded women do? And today, many feminists will look at this and balk at the idea, husband, is that all? It was the writer Irina Dunn, and not, as is commonly supposed, Gloria Steinem, who, who coined the phrase, a woman needs a man as a fish needs a bicycle. Well, Naomi would have totally disagreed. However, there is an irony in that quotation, because Irina Dunn wrote it when she was studying philosophy at university, and it was the, a spoof, a spin, on an atheist who wrote, a man needs God like a fish needs a bicycle. Now, the sad thing is that Naomi seems to be getting perilously close to thinking like that. She's no atheist, of course. She certainly talks a lot about God, but her heart is in a very different place from trusting him. There's an old story of a father who takes out his son and stands him on a brick wall in the garden. And uh, he then went and stood out on the Lord and encouraged the little fellow to jump into his arms. I'll catch you, the father said confidently. And after a lot of coaxing, the little boy makes the leap. And when he did, the father stepped back and let the child fall to the ground. He then picked up his son, dusted him down and dried his tears. Let that be a lesson. Never trust anyone. That's a terrible story, isn't it? As a father, I could never do that. 
I would never want to teach that. And yet, isn't that being realistic about living in this world? Naomi's getting close to thinking that's true of God. You can't trust him to do good for you. Look at verse 13. No, my daughters, it's more bitter for me than for you because Yahweh's hand has gone out against me. When she gets back to Bethlehem, what does she say in verse 20? Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but Yahweh has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Yahweh has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune on me. Yes, he's in control. Yes, he's the sovereign God. But in his sovereignty, he's brought me misfortune. The book of Ruth is a book of speeches, basically. It's a book of speeches. It's perhaps more like a radio drama than cinema in many ways. And this is the first really important speech of the book. Do you see? Everything is God's fault. She's empty. She's penniless. She's, the only thing she's full of is pain. She's been a refugee. She's helpless. The clouds have no silver linings. Everything is bleak, grim, and hopeless. She doesn't resent Ruth and Orpah at all. She loves them deeply. She's grateful for them, but she says, go back. You can almost hear her thoughts, can't you? At least they might get married, but I'm past it. I'm on the shelf. Just a bleak retirement ahead. I can only hope to beg, borrow, or steal. But before we move to Ruth's story, I have to say, my heart does go out to her, but I'm pretty uneasy with what she says. You see, I don't think she's strictly being fair, do you? What happened was not God's fault. Who took them to Moab in the first place? Elimelech. Plenty of people stayed in the land and turned to God to provide, which he did, as we will see. But this family left the land and effectively stopped trusting God. But human nature tends to shift the blame all too easily. We saw that, I heard that in the, in the clip from those, those two on Tuesday. It's the conservatives, the government, the police, whatever. And we shift the blame to God. This is um, Philip Yancey. Um, speaking about uh, uh, a situation he was in when he was... Well, let me just read it to you. Here we are. Hopefully. When Princess Diana died in a car crash, I got a phone call from a television producer. Can you appear on our show, he asked. We want you to explain how God could possibly allow such a terrible accident. Without thinking, I replied, could it have had something to do with a drunk driver going 90 miles an hour in a narrow tunnel? How exactly was God involved? I could not make the television appearance in the end, but this question prompted me to dig out a file folder in which I've stashed notes of things for which God gets blamed. I found a quote from a boxer, Ray Mancini, who had just killed a Korean opponent with a hard right. At a press conference after the Korean boxer's death, Mancini said, Sometimes I wonder why God does the things he does. In a letter to James Dobson, a woman wrote, asking this anguished question, four years ago I was dating a man and became pregnant. I was devastated. I asked God, why have you allowed this to happen to me? 
I do think Naomi's blame of God was unfair. Much that I understand it. It was also futile. It didn't help her at all. It just simply made her more bitter. And to top it all, her bitterness blinded her to reality. Because God had not abandoned her, despite her bitterness. She says in verse 21, she's been brought back empty. And that's simply not true. God gave her Ruth. And as we'll see, that changed everything. Her pagan daughter-in-law would turn out to be God's greatest gift he could possibly have given her. Beyond her wildest dreams. And so at last we come to dear Ruth. Interesting, for some reason, my slides are in the wrong order. Can you believe it? Shocking. Uh, that's wrong. Good. Oh, well, don't worry about that. Um, there's a picture of a boat there. That's the important thing. Um, <laughs> Robert Louis Stevenson tells of a, a storm that caught a ship off a rocky coast and threatened to drive it and the passengers to destruction. And in the midst of the terror of the storm, one daring man, contrary to orders, went onto the deck and made the dangerous journey to the pilot house to see the steersman. And he sees him at his post, holding the wheel unwaveringly, and inch by inch by inch, turning the ship once more out to sea. The pilot sees the watcher at his post, and he sees him smile. The daring passenger then went down below to the rest of the people on board and gave out a note of cheer. I have seen the face of the pilot, and he smiled. Now, I don't know how it happened, or even when it happened. Presumably, Naomi must have had a part to play in it, even though we're never told. But somehow, at some point, Ruth came to know God. It's amazing, through this family who fled from God's land. But when she did, everything changed. It's as if Ruth had seen God's smile and therefore all is well. She could chase the future. To begin with, uh, she and her sister-in-law Orpah are in it together. So at the end of verse 10, they wept aloud and, and said to her, we'll go back to you with your people. Uh, but Naomi's argument was pretty hard to counter, and, and Orpah went home, and no one blames her, least of all Naomi. She did absolutely the right thing. But Ruth refused. In fact, in verse 14, she clung to her. It's very strong language. The Hebrew can therefore be translated sort of cleave. She cleaved her in the sense of cleaving being used of marriage. She absolutely stuck onto her like a limpet. It's about a promise to be loyal, 
What is marriage if not a covenant of total commitment, a promise to be loyal? She cleaved, she stuck with her, said, I'm coming with you through thick and thin. And that's clear in what she says in verse 16, one of the great speeches of Ruth. Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I'm going. And where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I'll die, and there I'll be buried. May Yahweh deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. That is a remarkable vow. In the most serious terms possible. I'm going nowhere without you. Now that is an example of the kind of love that God shows. This is chesed, covenant faithfulness and reliability. This is love through thick and thin. It is the love commitment of a marriage, love that God shows his people. I'll be your God and you'll be my people. And Ruth says your people will be my people and your God will be my God. I'm in it together with you. A a magazine uh, put out uh, uh, a few years ago a, a prize for the best definition of a friend. What is a friend? And all kinds of good answers came out. Uh, one of them was uh, one who multiplies joys, divides griefs, and whose honesty is inviolable. It's pretty good, that one. Another one uh, defined a friend as someone who understands our silence. But here's the one that came top. The winning definition. A friend is the first person who comes in when the whole world goes out. Isn't that wonderful? And that was Ruth. Naomi was deserted by everyone except God and Ruth. And the combination was a pretty powerful one. She was far from empty. And Ruth's name is very appropriate. It's hard to actually define, but there's a possibility that it's root. Uh, in Hebrew, simply means companion or friend. Well, whether or not that is the case, it is very clear that she is a friend. But remember the cost to her. This is something we forget. Friendship and love is always costly. Free love is a contradiction in terms. Think of what it costs to Ruth She forsook her home. She turns her back on her own mother and her own culture, her country and the places she'd known as a child. One of the things I loved about coming back to London, having lived in Uganda, was a sense that London was my roots. I I, I live two miles away from where I was born now. I, I love London. There's a real sense this is my home. And the thought of being in exile from my home is a very painful thought. Your roots are really important to you. You're only going to do it if there is something more important to you. And for Ruth, there was. She's saying, no, I believe there's something better ahead, something better back in the promised land. Now, why? 
She forsakes marriage. You see, the irony is, by going with Naomi, she is not actually improving her marriage prospects. In fact, she's pretty much forsaking them. We forget that. You see, she forsakes the stability of a Moabite marriage for the sake of her loyalty to an aging mother-in-law, and she does it because of God. Do you see that? This is not romance. By traveling back to Bethlehem, she's turning her back on romance. What hope of marriage would a Moabitess living below the poverty line have in Judah? Zip. And to make matters worse, her first marriage was childless, which doesn't make her eligible. Because one of the most important reasons for getting married in the ancient world was to ensure the next generation. Her prospects are terrible for marriage. Who would marry her now? And thirdly, she forsakes her religion. She's not interested in the gods of her homeland. She wants the one true God of Israel to be her God. And that means becoming part of God's people. She's realized that you can't go it alone with God. You can't stay at arm's length in Moab, but you need to be with his people in his land. And hers is incredible faith and trust, isn't it? She is fearless despite the inevitable insecurities and the problems ahead. And they're going to be many. And the reason is that she's clearly already understood God. Isn't that it? Do you see what she says to Naomi? Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Does that sound familiar? Doesn't that ring bells? Isn't that the sort of thing that, precisely the sort of thing that Yahweh says to his people? Do you see... As she started trusting in this God, she started behaving like this God. Isn't that what happens? The more we get to know God, the more we live like him. And for all the comforts of staying at home, of finding a Moabite man, of the security of the familiar, for all those comforts, she realizes she's infinitely better off going with Naomi. In the world's eyes, she's insane. It's hard to get our heads around, isn't it? I guess sitting around this building this morning, there'll be individuals struggling with all kinds of different afflictions and struggles. I don't know whether it's battling with singleness or or marriage or unemployment or overwork or sickness or persistent temptation. You name it. And I certainly don't want to be glib. But Ruth is a challenge, isn't she? And that's hugely ironic, isn't it? Because Naomi was the Jewish woman with the heritage and the tradition of following God in his promised land. But here he is a Gentile woman with no legal or moral duty to accompany her at all. A Gentile woman who shows that God can be trusted for the journey ahead. Do you remember Jesus' reaction to the Gentile centurion who came to him for uh, his sick servant to be healed? Do you remember that? 
What did Jesus say? When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him and turned to the crowd following him, saying, I tell you, I've not found such great faith even in Israel. He could so easily have said that of Ruth. George Everett Ross was a minister in Ohio, and he wrote this towards the end of his ministry. I've served in the ministry 30 years, almost 31. I've come to understand that there are two kinds of faith. One type of faith says if, the other type of faith says although. One type says if everything goes well, if my life is prosperous, if I'm happy, if no one I love dies, if I'm successful, then I will believe in God and say my prayers and go to church and give what I can afford. The other type of person says, although the cause of evil prosper, although I sweat at Gethsemane, although I must drink my cup at Calvary, nevertheless, precisely then, I will trust the Lord who made me. So Job cried, although he slays me, yet will I trust him. Well, it would appear that Naomi, if she trusted God much at all, had an if type of faith. But Ruth had an although type of faith. Another great woman of God in the 20th century was Corrie ten Boom. There she is on the screen, ready and willing and waiting for us. She survived the horrors of a Nazi concentration camp, still trusting God. She put it like this, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. And she also said this, if God sends us stony paths, he provides strong shoes. She should know. And that is going to be proved true in what we read in the next few mornings. You see, Ruth is not, in fact, the hero of this all. It is God. He is the one who's working behind the scenes. This is not to condone Elimelech. It's not to suggest that Naomi was right to be bitter and blame God. I don't think either of them was right. But God was able to rescue even them Hopeless and helpless, though these were. But as Naomi and Ruth trudge their way back to Bethlehem, there's no hyperlink, there's no easy way. They certainly didn't have the resources to use animals. They walked every step. But they weren't alone. God was with them every step. They didn't need a husband to provide them with rest. They had the rest and security of a marriage, because even that is the rest and security of a temporary and fleeting thing. No, they had a God who would use anyone and every situation for his purposes, and he was with them. And I will never leave you nor forsake you. That is chesed, love. The love of the Lord Jesus his people. We'll see more of that in the mornings to come. 
that there's a lovely hint, as we finish now, of what is to come. A lovely hint in the very last verse of Ruth 1. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabites, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem just as the barley harvest was beginning. Well, fancy that. Can God be trusted? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you know us better than we know ourselves. You know that there are days, there are moments when we feel ourselves afflicted, forsaken. And our heart cries out to blame you. You know, Lord, how hard we find it to understand our times, let alone our own lives, to understand your purposes and plans for us. But fortunately, Lord, you know us better than we know ourselves. You know what we're like, and you are so patient with us and kind and gracious. And you forgive us our blips and our blames. We just long that we might cling to the Lord Jesus as the one whose purposes are good and the one we know in the face of an unknown future. Lord, give us the strength to trust when so much else and the many myriad voices around us are seeking to undermine that. That we might walk with you all our days. For your glory's sake. Amen.